Welcome to the Family Tree Magazine podcast, the show from America's number one genealogy magazine. I'm your host, Lisa Louise Cook. In this episode, we are going to check in at the editor's desk with Allison Stacy, editor and publisher of Family Tree Magazine. We'll cover the latest happenings in the genealogy world with the genealogy insider blogger, Diane Haddad. In our top tips segment, we'll be talking with author and professional genealogist Jim Warren about Native American roots. We'll be spotlighting another terrific website in the 101 Best Websites for Tracing Your Roots list. In the library spotlight, we'll be visiting the East Tennessee History Center. And in the Best of Family Tree Magazine segment, we'll be discussing naming conventions with Sharon DiBartolo Carmack, author of the article Name Calling from the special 2006 Genealogy Guidebook issue. There is a lot to cover, so let's get to it. Our first stop is the editor's desk with Allison Stacy. Well, it's time once again to check in at the editor's desk with Allison Stacy. Hi, Allison. Hi, Lisa. I understand that you have um, a new issue coming out here very shortly. It's the December issue of the magazine, and I understand you might be able to give us a sneak peek on what we can look forward to. What's coming up? It's a themed issue, right? Yes, it is. It's our DNA issue. It's got a lot of articles about genetic genealogy. And one thing that I highlighted in my editor's note is this isn't really an issue that's just for folks who are already involved in genetic genealogy and um, really kind of hip to how it all works. We've kind of focused it toward people who are interested in it or maybe um, you know you've thought about trying it or maybe you don't even want to try it but you just don't understand how it all works and how it's being used and so um, you know the headlining article is um, on DNA myths so as we've gone um, around the country and talked to folks at genealogy conferences and different appearances we found out that a lot of people don't um, there, there's a lot of misconceptions out there about what genetic genealogy is and how it works and what you can use and what you can and can't do. So um, our cover story is going to sort of dispel those myths and explain what you actually can do. Great. So we'll find out what it can do for us and what it cannot do for us so we don't end up disappointed when we get our results. Exactly. And um, another sort of interesting twist that we've taken on this topic is um, talking about medical history, which, of course, is related to genetics because it's, you know, a lot of conditions and things are passed down in families. And so um, we've got a guide to how to research conditions in families, how, um, you know, maybe the cause of death is a little mysterious to you or you find out that there's a predisposition to certain ailment or, you know, cancer or um, heart disease or something like that, sort of how you can use genealogical records to ferret out those clues and actually learn something pretty interesting about your ancestors. That's actually a real bonus to family history, isn't it? Because we're already in those records and finding out that information and how nice to kind of have a, a guide on how to help us pull that together for other purposes as well, because it sounds like medical history is becoming more and more of an issue and and an indicator, isn't it, of the kinds of things that you might face um, as you go through life. I think that's definitely true. You know, a lot of people are taking more charge of their own health and trying to understand health issues and wanting, you know, preventative medicine, of course, is becoming bigger and bigger. So, you know, it's, it's useful information, I think, for everyone to have. Terrific. 
And anything else in there that will uh, help us demystify this whole area of genetic genealogy? Well, there's one um, kind of handy thing in in this section that's just kind of a clip and save two-page guide to genetic genealogy in general. So we list the different types of tests that you can take and show you how, how where on your family tree that it's going to provide answers and list some terminology, a, a roundup of the different testing companies, just kind of a front and back sheet that's real easy. You can use it as a quick reference to all of the things you need to know about DNA. Sounds like that roundup of the companies would be really helpful because what I've heard is that, you know, there are several different companies and each one kind of has a different emphasis. I imagine that if you're trying to accomplish something in particular, I'm thinking in terms of like Jewish genealogy, aren't there some companies that kind of focus on that with their databases and then others who maybe aren't as focused on that? Well, and I I think that's true in that, you know, if there's certain populations or surnames that you might be looking at, a company that has more of those similar people in their database is going to potentially be more helpful to you in terms of providing a potential connection between you and another person that you, um, you know, would have that link in your family tree. So um, if you were Jewish and looking to make those connections, a company like Family Tree DNA, which has the largest Jewish database, database of customers, I believe, Mm -hmm. um, would be a good choice for you. Oh, good. Well, now, when does the new issue come out, the December issue of 2009? Well, it's going to be shipping to subscribers over the next couple of weeks, and um, the official on-sale date on the newsstands, you can look for it on November 3rd. All right. Well, we'll keep an eye out for it. Thanks for the sneak peek, Uh, Allison. Appreciate it. Thanks, Lisa. Well, it's time for the news from the blogosphere with Genealogy Insider and Managing Editor, Diane Haddad. Hi, Diane. Hi. Well, I, Diane, I know you've been on vacation this last week, but you have still been on top of what's going on um, in the genealogy world. I know a couple of interesting items showed up on the Insider blog. Tell us what's been happening. Yes, my colleagues here at Family Tree Magazine were posting busily last week, and I thought one um, one item that I wanted to mention to people because it's a first-of-its-kind event is the International Black Genealogy Summit that's happening at the end of October, the 29th through the, t- the 31st, and that's at the Allen County Public Library in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Oh, great. Just in time for Family History Month. Yes, and what's neat about it is that it's the first ever gathering of all kinds of different African-American genealogy organizations. So um, you have different societies, um, historical societies, genealogical societies all coming together. And that first day, that Thursday, the library is putting on a public workshop for anybody to go to um, about african-american genealogy and they'll have um different workshops and and events going on there and then the actual conference starts the next day and it goes for um for two days the 30th and the 31st and it'll just be a great opportunity for people to celebrate their culture and to learn more about researching their family history Oh, and the perfect place to have a first-time conference like that. They can head right into that library, which is so rich in its resources. Absolutely. Yeah, and the library is sponsoring extended hours each day of the conference for, especially for conference attendees. Wonderful. 
And you've got something kind of new first time there at Family Tree Magazine. Tell us about the, I don't know, is it a contest? Tell us about what's going on with the bloggers. Well, I'm not thinking of it so much as a contest as a recognition. Yeah. For the past month, we had uh, our readers and our blog readers nominate genealogy blogs that they read. And um, then we went through and we we categorized the blogs into, I think we ended up with 10 categories of blogs. And now we're having people vote on, um, on their favorite genealogy blogs in each category. And we're going to have an article in the May Family Tree Magazine that will be the Family Tree Magazine best 40 best genealogy blogs. It'll be the Family Tree 40. And we're really excited about getting more of our subscribers to... Um, subscribers and newsstand readers to learn about these blogs because there is great information on genealogy blogs. And there's such a wide range of them. I can understand why you'd be doing the categories because you've got the informational ones, the techie ones, um, the ones that are kind of family stories. What are the types have you come across? There are people like Genia Musings, and um, several others who blog about everything. So we have a special all-around category for those people. And we have our biggest category was the personal and family blogs, people who are writing about what they know, which is their own ancestors and their own research. And um, we have some focusing on local and regional history where people highlight the different resources and genealogy events for one geographical area, whether it's a town or a county or a region. Um, Cemetery blogs, those are becoming pretty popular. Mm -hmm. People post pictures and inscriptions from gravestones and historic cemeteries. There were some genealogy companies that have um, informational blogs, genetic genealogy, instructional um, news blogs like Dickie Eastman's online genealogy newsletter, and then um, blogs focusing on specific heritage groups such as American Indian and African American. So quite a variety of blogging and information is, um, is in genealogy blogs. Well, you know what's really going to be nice about that is not only the, the recognition and exposure for those who are currently blogging, but I know there's a lot of people out there who are thinking about the possibility, whether it's personally or for their genealogy society. And this is a wonderful way to kind of peruse the best of the best and get some great ideas and see how other people are doing it, right? Yeah, I think that there's it's a rewarding thing for people to put you know all of their research and their hard work out there. And it's a creative outlet for people. And then it's a great way for societies and organizations to let other people know about what kind of resources they can find. You bet. And and how nice that we can subscribe to the blogs and have them delivered to our computer. I know that's how I follow you on the Genealogy uh-huh. Insider blog. Absolutely. <laughs> I love it. I it do. comes right to me. I, I know exactly when you, you publish your new articles. So interesting stuff. Thanks so much, Diane, for joining us here on the show today. You're welcome. Does your family lore tell of an American Indian ancestor? Well, in today's top tip segment, we are going to explore how to research that ancestor with professional genealogist James Warren. He's the co-author of the article titled Indian Territory, and it's available now in the November 2009 issue of the magazine. Welcome to the show, Jim. Hi, Lisa. Hi, Jim. I'm real interested in talking with you today because um, this is certainly an area that a lot of us have not gotten into yet. But we may find as we're traveling down our tra- our family tree that 
that this may come up, um, this whole idea of researching American Indians. And um, you've covered so much great material in this article. I just wanted to ask you a couple of key questions to help us get started. And the first one that really comes to mind is, are we going to expect to find very unique and different record types than we normally would in our research when we're doing American Indian research? Well, you will find some unique ones when you're researching American Indians. Uh, you'll find that you need to use all of the, the records that we normally use in uh, in researching uh, the general population. But uh, the, the relationship of American in- Indians with the federal government uh, prompted the creation of some additional records that are unique in a lot of ways. Uh, in the earlier uh, generations, Annuity rolls are one of those um, under the treaties that uh, that over time the government signed with various tribes. They provided annual annuities, and those could be either cash payments or goods, and sometimes both. And oftentimes that's the only place you'll find um, recorded in any detail uh, a listing of tribal members or at least the heads of household of uh, of the tribe. And in those early times, too, um, oftentimes missionary records and mission newspapers were where um, those tribes that didn't necessarily write much of their own history or record much of it uh, were documented by the missionaries from uh, the various religions that uh, that ministered to them. Um, they often performed their sacraments and, and baptized and married and, and buried uh, the Indians in, in uh, their area and recorded those as they would normally. But they also oftentimes um, sent newspapers as a way of um, of supporting the mission. They had people who subscribed to the paper as a way of of helping support it, and so the news was reported back from the the mission and uh, documented. And they didn't get in the local newspapers, but oftentimes they made it into those mission newspapers. In uh, later times, uh, as we get through the, the, the times where the reservations uh, became important and um, we got into the 1880s, um, the American Indians went from being some of the, the most poorly documented individuals to being probably the best documented Americans uh, between about 1885 and 1930. Uh, those Indians who were living on reservations uh, were not only um, given an, an annual census, but also there were uh, what they called sanitary records or health records that were kept, um, school records for the Indian children who were attending Indian schools. They uh, began to be allotted land, and so there were allotment records that were filed. And from those, airship records, which are often much more detailed than the probates that you'll find at the, at the county courthouse for uh, other members of, of that particular county. Um, so there are some things that are, are really unique or more detailed in a lot of ways for American Indians, at least in those later time periods. Wow, that's terrific. It sounds like there are some records just unique to the um, the American Indians themselves. But let's say we're, we're thinking about a grandmother or a great-grandfather, and we're talking the early of the 20th century. Where do we start looking first, knowing that there's not only the traditional records, but some of these more unique ones? Well, the important thing is to keep in mind that uh, that in many ways researching American Indian ancestry is no different than researching any other ancestry. And so it's important to start with yourself and work back one generation at a time 
so that you're not skipping over the clues in those later generations that might point you to uh, to the specific tribe that uh, an Indian ancestor was affiliated with in particular. Uh, that's the important clue to, to look for as you work your way back. Um, what you'll find is that oftentimes um, Indians weren't documented until the reservation era, um, and so in the in the Indian records, and so it's important to look for them in all the other records that we normally use in the in the land records, in the the deeds, and and, and probate, um, in all those things that um, that we may find them recorded in. Um, they may have been living as part of the the white community, or may have been back and forth between uh, between the Anglo and the and the Indian community, and that was not at all uncommon. There was lots of intermarriage between tribes and between. Um, the immigrants and, and Indians also, and so all the all the normal records need to be used, uh, and look for clues to when you will find your American Indian ancestor actually affiliated with a tribe. So you're looking for the the stories within the family, uh, things in county histories, watching for the tribal name that might give you the clue to to uh, which tribe they belong to. And um, and looking at the history of the area where you know that the ancestor lived, so that you can identify the tribes that uh, were there at that particular time period, where they might have had uh, had contact. There may have been intermarriage at that point. Um, as with any other research, no one record is usually going to give you the the uh, the clue that you need. You need to compile uh, everything that you can find and, and analyze and put that together uh, to point you to the the uh, the place where you're going to to uh, find your your ancestor had contact and uh, was part of a tribe. Um, probably the one type of record that will most benefit most people is researching the census records. Uh, from 1885 forward, uh, Indian agents were supposed to annually take a census. Now it didn't always happen every year at every locality. It was a little more sporadic than that oftentimes. But those censuses are uh, fairly readily available. Ancestry.com has the entire collection online. Um, there are over 600 microfilm rolls of Indian census rolls that uh, the National Archives has microfilmed. They're available um, in addition to the online Ancestry collection, which uh, if you're an Ancestry member, you can, you can access. Um, they're also available through the Family History Library and many other um, historical societies and, and large genealogical collections around the country also have those those microfilms available. That's a good place to um, to start and make that connection, and the access on Ancestry has made it uh, pretty easy to search them because the, the uh, collection is indexed on Ancestry, so you can quickly see whether you can, can pinpoint uh, that ancestor that you believe was affiliated with the tribe. Well, that's great. Now, we've got those records that we can explore, but what do you think about DNA? Would DNA testing be of help to the American Indian researcher? Well, um, it's not like CSI Miami. Uh, you're, not going to, uh, you're not going to give a, a sample and, uh, and have them come back and identify your, your Indian ancestor or even the, the tribe that uh, they were probably associated with. Um, if you look at, at DNA testing ads, it may sound like that's a shortcut to, uh, to finding Indian ancestry, but what they're doing there is, is uh, more uh, deep testing based on general populations over wide areas, and it doesn't really 
give you anything except an idea that that, that may be um, uh, Indian ancestry that you have in a particular era and a particular time period. But um, DNA testing still can be useful because more and more people are doing it. And so the databases are getting larger. The information they have is becoming more accurate as more people who have compiled genealogies um, that they can document their connections to uh, to specific people in the past um, have their DNA tested and, and submitted and, and all of that starts to come together. So um, it still can be can be useful if your test results match someone else's. Um, you know that you've got a, a connection. You don't know exactly where, but it can help you start to um, to pinpoint um, where you may have a common ancestor. And if it is a, an American Indian, that will um, will help take you in that direction. Um, probably the the most useful right now is uh, is the male DNA test um, testing. Uh, Individuals of a of a specific surname, uh, so that you can can match up um, back to with fair certainty um, a certain number of generations back. So it it will become more and more accurate as time goes on. But at this point, um, it's more useful for clues than for anything else. You've given us so many great tips already to get us started. And well, if you'd like to learn more on this subject, be sure and check out the article that Jim co wrote with one of our other favorite guests, Sharon DeBartolo Carmack. And it's called Indian Territory, which you will find in the November 2009 issue of the magazine. And you will also find Jim and Sharon and their genealogy consulting firm called Warren Carmack and Associates, located in Salt Lake City, on the web at www.warrencarmack.com. Jim, thank you so much for talking with us today and helping us to get a good jump start on our American Indian research. Thanks, Lisa. I enjoyed it. In today's 101 Best Website segment, we are going to explore a longtime favorite, and that is Find a Grave. Uh, the website's at findagrave.com, and who better to take us on a tour than the founder of Find a Grave, and that's Jim Tipton. Welcome to the show, Jim. Hi, right, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. Um, you know, this one is uh, just a popular one. I don't know anybody who hasn't probably used Find a Grave, but it's kind of nice just to get an overview and make sure we introduce it to, to folks who may not have checked it out yet. And um, I- I'm really curious because I know that you founded Find a Grave way back in 1995. What prompted you way back then to start this website? Um, yeah, way back in 95, which in web years is uh, way, way back. Yeah. It basically um, it grew out of two things. Um, one, I've always kind of had nerdy tendencies, and I wanted to learn how to, um, you know, build a web page, or everyone's building home pages at the time. And then I've also been a bit of an insomniac most of my life, so I had a few spare hours every night between night and two in the morning, and um, that's kind of how it started. And it was just uh, I kind of thought, what, should, what what will I put online? And I put my listing of famous graves online. Um, certainly having no idea where it would end up where it was today. So it kind of started as a home fun thing and kind of grew um, organically from there. So was that a, a hobby of yours, kind of following and, and documenting famous the graves of famous people? You've got thousands on there. 
Yeah, there are tens of thousands on there, actually. And, yeah, it, it is a hobby of mine and one that people who had prior to finding Gravestone in general, I think a lot of people thought they were the only ones with that hobby, but all of these little niche hobbies have emerged um, since the Internet uh, gave us all a, a voice, kind of. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I like to go into Earl Marx's grave when I live in London and just kind of feeling that um, sense of closeness where, you know, you're actually within a few feet of where someone ended up, like, you know, Abraham Lincoln or someone, you know, these huge iconic names, and, and there you are, and you know that that's where their body ended up. Um, I think it's, uh, a lot of people initially think it's like this morbid hobby or something, but it's, it's, it's you go, you visit a grave, I think, for the similar reason you visit a, a family member's grave to kind of remember the person and, and think about their life while you're there. Absolutely. When did it expand into just the everyday folks, you know, the ancestors of everyone else? Well, you know, people started submitting me, submitting more and more uh, obscure names um, and, you know, Civil War Brigadier Generals and, and people who I wasn't sure if I would consider them famous, but I just continued to add them. And, and, and sure enough, someone would write the next day and say, Oh, I'm so glad he started to add Civil War General or something like that. <laughs> um, and it, at some point, it, it made sense, and I'm not sure if it was year that was, but it's around 2000 or maybe 99. Um, I just decided to kind of get rid of the uh, distinction of fame and welcome uh, anyone on because there's people were submitting people who weren't famous anyway. They were saying, "Oh, my aunt was the made the best chocolate chip cookies in Brooklyn or something, <laughs> and she's famous for that." Or so, so, in order to not have to deal with that. Um, I just said, you know, let's have everyone come in, and that just really opened the floodgates um, and, you know, obviously allowed for many more thousands of names um, to pour in, and we're at um, wherever we are now, 37 million. So you weren't necessarily a genealogist yourself. Did it surprise you when the genealogist kind of took over <laughs> or invaded? Yeah, yeah, it certainly has. And, and there's still the, this component of people who are there for the famous names only, so the, the, it, it appeals to some different uh, different segments. But the genealogy uh, segment is, is certainly the biggest and the, the fastest growing and um, probably the most important at this point. And, yeah, it, it totally surprised me because I, I wasn't a genealogist, to be honest. And I, I'm still, I don't consider myself a genealogist. genealogist. I don't really know my own family past, uh, you know, my great-grandmother or something. So, uh, uh, but it's certainly a world that I've become acquainted, uh, you know, gotten uh, acquainted with since I've, since I've been running this. You bet. So if a genealogist comes to find a grave and, and wants to see if by chance you've got a listing for somebody in their family, uh, what's the quickest and best way to do that? Um, well, I'd like to point out from the from the get-go that everything's free. You can become a member, add a name, add photos, add your family, do all of that for free, and uh, and certainly search the site. You don't even have to register to search the site. Um, all you do is click on the right. It says search 37 million names, and you, you know, pretty standard search interface with the surname and years and uh, states and things like that, and you can, you know, enter your ancestors' information and hope that they come up. And uh, if they don't show up and you know where they're buried, we uh, certainly welcome you to add them to the site. That's what Findagrave is all about, is um, kind of this huge community of over half a million people uh, adding information and photos and uh, hopefully building a resource for other um, you know people looking for that information. Oh, that's great. Now, it's grown really large. I mean, you mentioned 37 million names, and I know you get a ton of visitors every single day. How much of Jim Tipton's life does Findagrave take over? <laughs> Good question. <laughs> uh, all of it, pretty much. Yeah. How many how many hours are in a day? 
the uh, yeah, it's really a uh, certainly a full time job at this point. Um, running a free website um, makes it hard to have any uh, <laughs> a real big uh, paid paid workforce. So we we rely heavily on some really really great um, uh, administrators who help out with uh, running this stuff day to day. But yeah, it's it, it's grown tremendously. Um, we're we're adding names faster than the death rate in the U.S., which which is uh, kind of a, a hallmark we were looking to pass, and we did last year. So um, it's just growing and growing and growing. And with the advent of digital cameras, of course, everywhere now, it's so easy to go document a grave, uh, a cemetery, whereas it used to be a lot more expensive and, and time consuming. But now it's just like click, 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 submit it to the site, and and you know the site just keeps growing. Yeah, and that's what's so great about it. It is interactive. Everybody can participate. If somebody wanted to help support you and helping you keep this site going, what what kinds of things can they do to support Find a Grave? Um, well, by far, the best thing you can do is to come and join and just be an active part of the community. Um, if you know the cemeteries in your county, if you know if you have a special cemetery that you want to document and make sure it, you know you've got all the names in there, or maybe f- go photograph them, or you know do anything like that, or even just adding your own family or you know your own your own lines, um, that's the single most important way um, you know people support the site because really it is just this huge uh, community, and the bigger the community, uh, the more data and the more people ultimately it's going to help. So that's that's kind of what we're all about. That's fantastic. Well, again, you can find it at findagrave.com. You've heard from the guy himself who put it together, and we are so glad you did. Thank you so much, Jim Tipton, for joining us on the show. Yep, thank you. In today's Library Spotlight segment, we are going to explore the rich resources of the East Tennessee History Center with the manager of the Calvin M. McClung Historical Collection, Steve Cottom. Welcome to the show, Steve. Thank you. You know, Steve, in the Family Tree Magazine um, survey of librarians across the country, the East Tennessee History Center surfaced really as one of their favorites. So I'd love to have you give us an overview for those who are listening who may not be familiar with your organization and uh, your resources there. Well, the uh, East Tennessee History Center is the kind of research facility that has been held up to us in the community as a model that we ought to strive for as a public and private partnership. And and we have that here in the History Center. The East Tennessee Historical Society took on the mission of building a museum collection and, and opening a museum of East Tennessee history, which has really complemented the collecting that we have been doing for many, many years in the library. Our library is... 118 years old and the history department is now 90 years old so it's a very old institution with a rich history and and a lot of different kinds of resources that range from artifacts to manuscripts to all sorts of printed matter so it's it's a, a variety of materials under one roof and let's talk about that roof a little bit. Where are you located, and is the library part of a building that is shared with the History Society? How does that work? Yes, we're in, the East Tennessee History Center is a, a occupies a, a half block building. It's a historic building for the most part in downtown Knoxville, and it's a partnership between the public library system and the historical society. Uh, the entrance is in the newest part of the building, which fronts on the main street in downtown Gay Street. But the uh, historic building goes all the way to the block behind that. So my 
desk is a block from the place where you come in to, be, <laughs> to use our <laughs> library. But it's a it's a remarkably functional facility for something that the building itself is actually 130 years old and um, has been added to twice, so that it's grown from a from a an old federal court house and post office into a into a history center which houses a library archives and a, a museum oh great now what kinds of resources would be of particular interest to a genealogist there genealogists would be interested in i think in in our print collection our book collection which is what you think of when you think of a library we have a, a very large collection of printed material on the states of the south plus the states of Missouri and Kentucky and West Virginia, um, which are states that a lot of people from this area migrated to. So, you know, one of the visitors here, Tommy, that, who was from Texas, said we had one of the best Texas collections she'd seen since she left Texas. So we have a rich collection of things that are not just about Tennessee. Um, one of the things that makes our collection unique is that we do collect genealogical papers, and we have um, the papers of processed collections of about 60 different genealogists working primarily in East Tennessee and adjacent region, uh, the adjacent regions right around us. So there's a, a lot of unique material here that's available only here in this library. And uh, one of the unique holdings that we have are the, the records of the first families of Tennessee, which was the, um, it was the bicentennial project of the state bicentennial project of the East Tennessee Historical Society. Uh, the, the idea was to try to reconstitute uh, a record of those people who were in Tennessee in the earliest days of settlement from 1770 to 1796. And so the idea of creating this lineage society of families whose ancestors were here at that time was a way to try to recapture some of the, the lost records that, that didn't survive from the, from the early days of settlement and our 1790 census, which is totally gone. Mm. And I've heard that you have almost 15,000 members, and they represent all 50 states. So when you have people bringing their pedigree charts and their information, proving their lineage, that's a lot of great genealogical information. It, it is a lot of really good genealogical information. And, of course, in the process, we're capturing additional records and documents, Bible records and things like that, that will really help a genealogist. And that was really the goal. I mean, that was our sort of unspoken goal when we set out to do this. This. All of the earliest tax records and, and many of the census records are are gone. So it's a you know when you go back into that era, you've got some surviving county records, and, and it's a, it's harder to research in the front. This was our very first frontier in the United States. This settlement of people who spilled over the mountains into Tennessee and Kentucky, and uh, you know took the land before they really had any authorization to come over here from anybody, really. Yeah, exactly. Well, for those who want to make the trek out to where you are and would like to be able to visit your library and your history center there in person, um, what tips would you have for them to get the most out of their visit? If, the, if people have ancestors in this region, I would suggest that they start by looking at the, the family history files, the papers of the genealogists that we have. And we do have um, and, and the First Families of Tennessee files because those have not been reproduced and they're really not available anywhere else and they're one of the most unique things that we have. We have also microfilmed some church records from this area of the country and if persons looking for particular church records they would probably want to check the microfilm that that we have uh, for the county they're interested in because um, we 
try to track down things that are obscure and, and, and get those captured for uh, research use. Uh, and, and one example would be the, the records of the, uh, the Friends Church, which is a Quaker church over in Blount County. We microfilmed those records a few years ago. So if you had ancestors who were in that church or that community, you'd want to take a look at that microfilm. Be, be hard to find elsewhere. Yeah, you bet. Gosh, there certainly is a lot to explore there at the East Tennessee History Center, and not just for those with um, ancestors from Tennessee, but it sounds like you have a smattering of of great stuff for folks um, from around the country. Now, for those of you listening, you can visit them in person at 601 South Gay Street in Knoxville, Tennessee, and they're on the web at east-tennessee-history.org. Steve, thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast and uh, giving us this great introduction to the East Tennessee History Center. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. Are you mixed up by multiple monikers? Well, back in the 2006 Family Tree Magazine Genealogy Guidebook, author and professional genealogist Sharon DiBartolo Carmack wrote an article called Name Calling that can help you untangle the ancestral nicknames, the name changes, spelling variations, all the things that can trip you up on your research. And she's here on the show with me today. Welcome back to the podcast, Sharon. Thank you, Lisa. Good to be here again. Oh, glad to have you and looking forward to talking about name calling because as I was reading back through the article, oh my gosh, there were so many good refreshers in this, things to, to remind you to look for, to think about as you're looking at names, and there are so many different variations. Tell us about some of the things that may be tripping us up that we should keep an eye out for. Okay, well, you would think names would be relatively easy in doing family history research, but they're probably the most complex things uh, in, that trips us up in our research that uh, we have because people change their names just like they did today, but in particular, when we have immigrant ancestors, they might go by a different name in the old country, and then once they get to America, they've adopted a more Americanized version of their name. And then they may have nicknames on top of that, and of course you have women who get married, and then they change their names. So we have a whole a whole world full of problems. And if you have those um, eyes on where you're just focused on a particular name, you may miss your ancestor whose name is spelled differently than you think it was, or it's translated differently than you think it was, or he or she was using a nickname. Um, so names can be really problematic in our in our research. Absolutely. All good points. Now, one of the classic name myths that are out there is that, oh, our, our, our immigrant ancestors' names were changed at Ellis Island. Tell us about that. Is that true? <laughs> yeah, it's a huge myth, and it keeps cropping up, and it never seems to go away, um, because many families have that in their family um, tradition, that their ancestor's name was changed on Ellis Island. Unfortunately, I've, uh, when I was researching my book, um, A Family Tree Guide to Finding Your Ellis Island Ancestors and putting to, together my lecture on Ellis Island, I spoke with a number of Ellis Island historians, and they said there has not been a single documented case 
of a person's name being changed on Ellis Island. And what happened, what they think happened and why this got started is immigrants either changed the names themselves to fit in or else um, like when they sent their kids to school and the American teachers couldn't pronounce their names and so the teachers would call them by a different name and then they would just adopt that name and use it. So um, unfortunately, names were not changed on Ellis Island. Um, the inspectors were told not to mark on the passenger list except to verify the name that the per person came over with and confirm that name. But they did not change any names on Ellis Island. And really, they recorded those names actually in the old country, didn't they? They weren't even writing them in Ellis Island. They were writing them in the port of departure. Exactly. All the passenger lists were compiled when the immigrant bought his ticket, when he left the old country, and that's when they would have written down the names on the passenger list, either from the immigrant telling them, or if they had some kind of travel documents, they would have copied it off of there. Um, but And then once they got to Ellis Island, then, like I said, the inspectors just asked them the same questions over again that were already on the passenger list, that was already filled out in the old country, and uh, just compared the answers. So they didn't, they, there was no need to write anything down. So, again, it's one of those myths that just doesn't want to seem to die. Exactly. Well, I found in my own family with my German ancestors that actually the two times they went to try to become naturalized citizens and then therefore used a more um, Americanized name was when the two wars broke out. When World War One broke out, they went in and they didn't finish it. And then when World War II broke out, they went in and they and they finished the process and the name was officially changed. So there were other factors going on. I, I think that's so interesting. And one of the other things that you talked about that I have also come across in my research, I'm sure those listening have as well, is when you find two people in the same town with the same name. And it's not necessarily a huge town, but that can be a trap, can't it? It certainly can because it's difficult to sometimes separate out these two people with the same name. And there are several clues that are usually in the records or several things you should be looking for to distinguish and make sure you're John Smith and uh, is the right one versus the John Smith that you're looking at in the records. Um, sometimes the records will designate the two men by the same name as junior or senior. Um, this does not indicate that it's a parent or a father-son relationship, just that one is older than the other and that there are two men by the same name, and so this one is the senior one and this one is the junior one, or it might say the elder uh, and the younger. It just depends on what the, the clerk was doing. But frequently it will say senior and junior, and it could be an uncle and a nephew. It could be cousins. It could be two people who are totally unrelated, but one was just older than the other one. The other thing in trying to distinguish two men by the same name is to, this is where land records and tax records are going to be so critical because no two men owned the exact same property nor were they taxed on the exact same property. So that helps you distinguish um, two men by the same name um, as well as working to identify, okay, who are their children, who are their siblings, etc. because you're not going to find two men of the same name 
who are brothers usually. Once in a while you might, uh, if they're going by um, middle names, but they both happen to have the fir- same first name, but typically not. Typically they're going to be from different families. So those are the things to be looking out for. But land records and tax records are the key to separating um, two men by the same name and making sure that you've got the right person. That's a great tip. You know, the idea that uh, no, you know, no two people are going to be owning that same piece of property and, and what a wonderful identifier. And you've got a lot of great tips in here. You, you talked about some of the unusual nicknames for women and how we the nicknames aren't necessarily very correlated to the original name. They just happen to be associated with that nickname. There was an example of that. Was it like Mary and Polly? Yeah, exactly. A nickname for Mary was Polly, and for Sarah would be Sally. Um, and again, if we're talking about ethnic groups, the the names, the nicknames can be um, something totally bizarre. Like in, in Irish, um, Bridget could be Delia, or vice versa. Delia could be called Bridget. So uh, there's a wonderful book on nicknames by um, Christine Rose. Yes, I think it was called Nicknames Past and Present. Yes, and she gives you a list of what the common name is and then what the the generally accepted nicknames were for that particular ancestor. And sometimes, I don't know, maybe I'm the only one who does this, sometimes I get so used to mentally calling an ancestor by his full name, Thomas or Benjamin or whatever, that I forget that he went by Tommy or Tom, Mm -hmm, or mm -hmm. Ben, (laughs) and so I forget to look for those nicknames myself because I'm thinking, oh, this is Thomas, or this is Benjamin. So remember that your ancestors did go by nicknames um, and use them. So, um, yeah, that's another aspect that can trip us up. Well, if you'd like to learn more about Sharon's article, it's called Name Calling. It's in the 2006 Genealogy Guidebook. It's available at the Family Tree Magazine shop at shopfamilytree.com. And not only will you have this great article, but she's actually got a full page, almost chart here. It's called Picking Out Patterns. And it's all about how surnames are developed and the different ways in which these patterns developed. So it would really give you some clues to some of those challenging names that you're dealing with. And, of course, Sharon can be found. She's a professional genealogist. She's at warrencarmack.com. Sharon, thank you so much again for um, joining us here on the show and and doing a little bit of clarifying on all these uh, name challenges we're faced with. Thanks so much. Thank you, Lisa. Thanks so much for joining me for the October 2009 episode of the Family Tree Magazine podcast, the monthly show from America's number one genealogy magazine. Here are a couple of action items for you until we meet here again next month. First, be sure and visit the Genealogy Insider blog for all the latest genealogy news on a daily basis at blog.familytreemagazine.com insider. Next, go to FamilyTreeMagazine.com slash podcast to find the show notes for this episode, which will include information and website links for all the things we covered on today's episode, including how to order a back issue of that 2006 genealogy guidebook. And if you have any questions or comments, please email me at ftmpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much for joining me today. I'm Lisa Louise Cook, and I hope that you will visit me at my website at genealogygems.tv, where you can listen to my free podcasts, the Genealogy Gems podcast, and Family History, 
Genealogy Made Easy. Both shows are also available through iTunes. So until next time, have fun climbing your family tree. 